It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 148, Ahab's Legacy and the Spirit of Deception. The basis of the three-year standing agreement between Ahab and Ben-Hadad stated Ben-Hadad would give back Ahab all of Israel's territory and allow trade relations to exist between the countries, and there was a submission factor too, where Ben-Hadad swore to be Ahab's friend. And this was on the basis that he saved his life and didn't kill him. It appears Ben-Hadad did exactly what the treaty declared. He gave back the cities that were Israel's. And there seems to be a breaking of this treaty, though, after the three-year time frame and after the Battle of Karkar. I've done a bit of reading into this, and it appears that Ramoth-Gilead, which is pretty remote, allowed Ahab to partially control them after Ahab defeated Ben-Hadad. But over time, as the Arameans began to show strength again, they swayed their allegiance back to Ben-Hadad, most likely because of Aram's strength and its proximity to Ramoth-Gilead. There was a significant shifting of power, yet it was slow. Ben-Hadad welcomed the approach and slowly and quietly extended his lordship back over the city. Ahab was fully aware of what was going on, and this small slight in a remote city was too much for Ahab. So he called upon his brother-in-law, now in marriage from Judah, King Jehoshaphat, because if he was going to war against Aram, he needed help. In addition to this, there's a rising up of the conquered states. Jehoshaphat is going to experience this as well. East of the Jordan is in an uproar and tired of Israelite overlordship. So we've got a few things going on. Regarding Moab, we have to understand Ben-Hadad is fueling any rebellion that pops up against Israel. Alright, the scene is set. Ben-Hadad is flexing his muscle and refueling rebellions against Israel. Ahab is preparing to go to war over Ramoth-Gilead, and he requests the help of King Jehoshaphat of Judah. So instead of a great peace settling the land after the Battle of Karkar, the victorious states get prideful and want to seize territory from each other. Because no one nation was significantly stronger than the others, these victorious nations are going to go toe-to-toe -to, -toe to try to take land from each other. It's like a boxing match that honestly is not going to truly help either one of them because not one of them is that much stronger than the other. Thus the consequence of false unity, it eventually turns on itself. Ahab's alliance of nations crumbled as fast as it came together. Reaching deep and with a sinister eye, Ahab pulls Judah into his wars. But this move was going way too far even for Ahab. 1 Kings 22 For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we're doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. 
Way to go, Jehoshaphat. I mean, I think his order is slightly off. First he said, my people is your people. Stinks of very unhealthy soul ties. Sounds a bit foolish to me, but he corrects himself. Then he said, let's receive counsel from God first. All right, good. But out of order, but good. Let's see what counsel he gets. But we've got to park here for just a minute. We should never commit our resources to something and then pray about it. Pray first, then act. Josephus adds a lot to this account. He says Jehoshaphat shows up with his entire army, and there was tons of pomp and ceremony, and then, during their feast, they seek for God's counsel. And we've got to mention, Jehoshaphat has a huge army, and he's been training for some conflict over a dozen years. In his blessing of faithfulness to God, he's been spared military conflict. And when he shows in Samaria, it must have been a sight. Their uniforms must have been perfect, their swords shining in the sun, and everyone's boots must have been spit-polished. I picture the perfect recruits entering the fields of World War I in 1914. They were perfectly dressed and, and looking and intimidating in their organization. And it was a great display of military organization and wealth. Jehoshaphat wanted to prove himself and his inexperienced army. The soldiers of Ahab were probably amazed at the wealth on display and organizational gear and equipment that Jehoshaphat brought with him. But saying all this, Ahab's men and soldiers were battle-hardened. They had fought in three major engagements in three years, defeating the Arameans twice and the mighty Assyrians. Jehoshaphat wanted a piece of the action. Ahab's soldiers probably resented the wealth of their brothers in Judah, but at the same time totally saw the greenness that is the military inexperience in their eyes. All right, so back to the council. Jehoshaphat told Ahab, let's inquire of the Lord. 1 Kings 22, 6. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it to the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here among we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micah, son of Imlah. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. Isn't this classic? Jehoshaphat wants to hear from a prophet. Ahab brings up his false prophets. They must be the false prophets of Asherah, who never made it or survived Carmel. Je Jezebel was probably pleased with her husband involving them in these state events. And Jehoshaphat knows the difference and makes this statement, Is there no prophet of the Lord among you? I just love this statement by Jehoshaphat. Is there no prophet of the Lord among you? Ahab remembers he put a prophet in prison some time back, so he calls out of prison, Micah. 1 Kings 22, 9 so the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on the thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Jedekiah, son of Kaniah, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says, With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the prophets were prophesying the same thing, Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious. They said, For the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micah said to him, Look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. 
Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead or not? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king answered, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? What I find interesting is Micah answered mockingly, and everyone in this scene understood that. But when I read it, it says attack and be victorious, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Micah spoke in mockery, but it doesn't read that way. Mockery doesn't translate into the written word sometimes. I have a feeling this is not the only time we have mockery in the Bible and people speaking in figures of speech of their day. So we have to truly understand the full context of a scene to even understand when an answer is mocking or not. All the more reason to learn biblical history. So the king acknowledges what he said made no sense. The king says, tell the truth, and he does. And not only this, Micah paints a strange picture that we have to explain to answer any theological questions. 1 Kings twenty-two seventeen. Then Micah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him, on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another that. Finally a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord, go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these prophets and yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. So this is a crazy story, and it raises some theological questions, which we'll try to answer. Micah has an open vision of the throne in heaven with God on the throne, surrounded by a throng of angels, apparently good and bad. This scene smells of a similar one in Job 1.6, where God and the devil have a conversation and they speak as to the faithfulness of Job, and God allows the devil to rain down chaos on Job as a testing for him to see if he's faithful. In this scene, God says, who will lie to Ahab and lead him to his death? See, this is a fulfillment of the judgment word spoken by God. This is an insight as well into the interactions into the spirit realm. Revelation 12.10 is, is similar as well, and it speaks of the accuser of the brethren who accuses the people of God day and night. All right, so if we can picture in our heads the temple and the palace in Solomon's day, it could probably help to explain what's going on in heaven. There is the Holy of Holies, where only the sanctified can go, the high priest. In heaven there is the Holy of Holies, where the altar and fire of God are kept. Seraphim are there. And there is the scene of Isaiah, where his lips touched a burning coal from the altar. That is the Holy of Holies. Just outside the Holy of Holies, there is the holy place. And this is where the, the priest of God, or the other angels, or the... Um, those who 
minister before the Lord can be. Further out is the outer court, where all can come and visit and pray. In this outer court, all can come, whether they're believer or non-believer. Next to the temple is where Solomon's palace was. But picture this in heaven. This is where the king lives. This is where God dwells and the throne exists. Only those with invitation can come to the throne in heaven. But as well, there's an outer court where a separate seat is held for the king to reign in justice. In this outer court, all principalities and powers can submit claims and legal disputes for the souls of men. Think of Solomon and the two prostitutes, one with the dead son, the other with the living son. This is a picture of the heavenly judgment seat. Not the great white throne in this situation, but the currently active heavenly court. It is through sin man surrenders his legal inheritance to the royalty rights of being a child of God. Here is Ahab, who consistently walks with darkness and loves his false prophecy and little g-gods. He calls upon 400 prophets of darkness to speak to him. The false prophets are wicked nasty. They are each opening doors to darkness and false prophecy. The Lord asking about a lying spirit alludes to the open door the false prophets carry. Because these men did not walk with God, they are sold out and legally a false spirit was permitted to speak through them. We can get our theology confused if we allow ourselves to here. When things get murky, we have to remember God is good, the devil is bad. In this scene, Ahab is being led by a false and lying spirit. He doesn't want to hear the truth from God's prophet. See, the funny thing is, the underlying, get the pun, theme of this episode is lying and deception. Ahab doesn't want to hear the truth. He only wants to hear a lie. He is a liar and he doesn't want to hear truth. He worships the opposite of God, which is the father of lies. There's going to be a very, very strong getting what is coming to Ahab in this episode. We get a peek behind the veil here to see what happens when God allows, let's make that clear, God allows evil to operate in an unrestrained manner. Ahab, who lied when he said Ben-Hadad was his brother, also lied when he allowed horrible men to accuse Naboth of blasphemy. He has lied and cheated and stole and murdered. I'm sure he did many, many other things the Bible doesn't speak of. He's going to attempt another deception in short order, and he's going to imprison a prophet again. His deception will end with deception. God allows in this scene, and Emon appears that he invites a lying spirit to deceive the deceiver of deceivers king of Israel. The destruction of Ahab and his family was already been declared. It's just about timing, and the invitation to Jehoshaphat, the good king of Judah, only invites more judgment or heavenly intervention or the acceleration of the already coming judgment on the head of Israel. Our peek behind the veil shows us how the Lord uses evil to accomplish his judgments at times. Don't ever confuse good and evil, but understand God in heaven still must judge. Ahab's time is up, though he's at the height of his power in a physical sense. So think with me here. There's two kings, Ahab, bad, Jehoshaphat, good. There's one true God, the essence of good, and the enemy of God, the devil, who is the essence of evil. 
It's the mixing of the good and bad king that creates a spiritual dilemma that forces God's hand to intervene. The real error of this episode was Jehoshaphat's desire to prove himself in battle. It's honestly foolish of him. Most scholars struggle with Jehoshaphat's poor choice here. One commentary said Jehoshaphat was either not very smart or he had great faith. My two cents is he allowed a complex sin where he felt like he had to prove himself. He basically allowed rejection in, and let's add a bit of wanderlust. He wanted a piece of the military action and glory. So we'll let you decide. Was Jehoshaphat led to this decision due to not being very smart? Or did he have great faith? Or did he just feel left out of world politics and he allowed wanderlust or military lures to drive him to prove himself? Whatever the reason, Jehoshaphat made an error working with and partnering with Ahab, which we'll see. Back to Samaria, where Micah prophesied the death of Ahab. 1 Kings 22:24. Then Zedekiah, son of Kenaiah, went up and slapped Micah in the face. Which way did the spirit come from? Micah replied, You will find out on the day you go to hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, Take Micah and send him back to Ammon, the leader, leader of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, This is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micah declared, If you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, Mark my words, all you people. All right, Zedekiah, the heathen prophet, slaps Micah. Obviously, he had a short-term memory problem because he forgot that dude that got eaten by the lion. And Micah basically says, Zedekiah, you'll be dead soon. And I picture Micah being hauled back to prison and he shouts out his last statements. Mark, mark this scene, all you people. So the obvious question here is, why is Jehoshaphat still going to war over Ramoth Gilead? The horrible move by the king of Judah, and he still didn't get it. I mean, a prophet of the Lord said, don't go, basically. But he does anyways. Ahab does something that stinks of absolute horrible treachery and deception next. The liar Ahab never stops plotting. 1 Kings twenty-two twenty-nine. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Are you kidding me? This is exactly what happens. How dumb was Jehoshaphat to fall for this? This literally happens. Ahab enters the battle in disguise, and there's Jehoshaphat on a chariot, very obviously leading his army in pomp and ceremony, attracting the full attention of the Arameans. So I was chewing on this one. Why did Ahab do this? There's a variety of reasons. The first being he knew the Arameans were great fighters and they would focus on him. Israel's soldiers were probably inferior to Aram's soldiers. His two victories over the Arameans were the consequence of godly obedience. And Ahab quietly knew this. For these reasons, he convinced Jehoshaphat to allow him to be in disguise as they fought the battle. What would Ahab gain from this? First, he would not be a target, but Jehoshaphat would be. Okay, so further, what would Ahab gain by the death of Jehoshaphat? The answer is his daughter would become queen of Judah, and his son-in-law, who was thoroughly converted to Baal at this point, would become king. 
self-preservation to the end and the death of an allied king in favor of his own son was his goal. But if they won the battle, he would get Ramoth Gilead. If they lost and Jehoshaphat would be killed, he would get Judah. It's a win-win for Ahab, but the ultimate deceiver would receive his due. After years and years of faithfulness, God was not going to allow Jehoshaphat to die in battle because of a temporary wandering heart. No, the Lord was going to protect the king of Judah, but release his protection from the ever-deceiving, lying, false, and manipulative Ahab. Another thing running into this battle, I get the take the Israelites were not really into the fight because the Arameans they had just fought with against the Assyrians. Ben-Hadad must have known this, for his strategy was just to kill Ahab wherever he was on the field and to end the struggle. 1 Kings 22:31. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, Do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. And when the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, Surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. Jehoshaphat, who was, has no military experience, runs for his life, and he's out of God's will in this battle, and it's the mercy of God which allows him to survive, but he loses a ton of soldiers in the process of this failed invasion. Gotta love Ben-Hadad's strategy. Killed the king, spare the men. Ben-Hadad knew the Israelites would fight reluctantly, away from home and against the people they just fought with. But most everyone hated Ahab. So to kill Ahab was a simple order. Here's the biblical account. 1 Kings 22:34. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, Wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot and that evening he died. And as the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army, every man to his town, every man to his land. According to Josephus, the man who fired the arrow was Naaman, and he shot an arrow which pierced through his breastplate. I picture Naaman in the midst of northern Israel's troops and wondering where Ahab was. He fought off those who chose to fight him, targeting a few suspicious men, and saw a man with a normal-looking helmet, a familiar-looking beard, he looked quite like the king. He seemed to have too many men around him to just be a normal soldier. Also, he noticed he wore a helmet, and in interesting enough, it was not connected to his armor like another man, he remembered, the king of Israel from Karkar. That was enough for him. He pulled out his bow, and with incredible force, he aimed at the king between sections of his armor and loosed the arrow. Naaman, the instrument of God's judgment, kills the king of Israel. It appears what started as a simple strategy of kill Ahab turns into a bloodbath of horrible proportions as the Arameans and the men of Judah and Israel fight the remainder of the day. It's like the battle cannot end until sunset and the results are nearly catastrophic for Judah and Israel. Beyond this, Ahab dies in total irony as he's taken dead to a pool where the prostitutes clean themselves. The man who committed more evil than any king of Israel dies in battle, his body and blood arriving and pouring forth at the place of cleansing where the prostitutes clean themselves. 1 Kings 22:37. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. 
They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed, and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. So, I, uh, I like what Josephus says about this scene, um, at least after his death. Josephus and his Antiquities of the Jews throws in side rails into his dialogue, and every once in a while he makes a point or two after the death of a king. Here's what he says after the death of Ahab. It's pretty good. And as what things were foretold should happen to Ahab, but the two prophets came to pass. And we once thence to have high notions of God, and everywhere to honor and worship him, and never to suppose that what is pleasing and agreeable is worthy of belief before what is true, and esteem nothing more advantageous than the gift of prophecy, and that foreknowledge of future events which is derived from it, since God shows men thereby what we ought to avoid. We may also guess from what happened to this king, and we have reason to consider the power of fate, that there is no way of avoiding it, even when we know it. It creeps upon human souls and flutters them with pleasing hopes, till it leads them about to a place where it would be too hard for them. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, King Ahab, one of our main characters of this age, has died. King Ahab will leave the kingdom in the hands of his son. His son will be a pitiful ruler. His sons will lack the physical energies and giftings of, his, of their father, but spiritually they will be just as terrible. So Ahab is dead, and we can't help but overemphasize the spirit of deception in this episode. The ninth commandment is thou shall not lie. This is a big deal or it wouldn't be a commandment. Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate said, What is the truth? Worldly system of power doesn't acknowledge truth in the correct weight, because it values power over truth. Jesus is the essence of all that is good and true. Jesus is truth. All truths are facts about God's creation and purposes. There is no lie in him. God cannot tell a lie. It is not his nature. It goes against who he is. For deception to even occur, darkness must be involved. A serpent must be treated like a serpent. The devil is described by Jesus in these words spoken to the Pharisees. John eight forty four. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus said of the devil, he was bad from the beginning, and he is the father of lies, lies of self-preservation and deception in order to pursue power. God, who is all-powerful, speaks in truth and wisdom and has no rejection or fear of loss of power. He could snap his fingers and destroy the earth. There is no need to pursue power. He created everything. He has the power to create and destroy in his very breath. When one lies, they agree with darkness. When one speaks the truth, they display the power of goodness. The story of Ahab is the story of deception. Ben-Hadad and Ahab are constantly deceiving each other in the game of world politics. Jezebel's manipulating every system to gain more control. Ahab is allowing lies and murder to steal land. Ahab is going to dress like a common soldier to deceive the Arameans. Ahab is going to lie to Jehoshaphat in a bid for his kingdom. He has manipulated Jehoshaphat as well into marrying his daughter, who has corrupted Jehoshaphat's son. It is no wonder when God implies, I surrender Ahab to his demons of deception. 
While the words read, who will lie to him and lead him to his death, my understanding of this scene is, I surrender him to do your worst to him. He loves deception so much, and he agrees so violently with deception. I release him to the spirit he loves the most. His endless agreement with deception led to a time when a good God surrendered him to the spirits he agreed with. What goes around comes around. It was the murder and imprisonment of the Lord's prophets, a lack of atonement and deception of Jehoshaphat, which only accelerated his upcoming judgment. Sin is an open door to darkness. Unrepentant sin is an invitation to a similar heavenly judgment. Man is betrayed by the sin he commits. All the more reason to live a holy and sanctified life to God, covered by prayer and a relationship with the merciful Savior full of grace. Josephus really rolls up his analysis of Ahab in good fashion, but going to add a personal opinion in here as well. The funny thing is, I believe of all the kings of Israel, I believe Ahab was the most gifted physically with ambition, intelligence, charisma, and all of that. He led his nation in victories in a coalition of nations, but spiritually he was a total disaster. He had his shining moment, of course, and when he listened to the prophets before a battle, and he did repent before Elijah. But overall, spiritually, he was a disaster. Say Ahab had the spiritual faithfulness of a King David, and with his giftings that he did possess, we could have had an incredible king rivaling even King David. Instead, we have a very, very gifted man who very temporarily repented to God, who served faithfully the demons who eventually destroyed him. Let this be a message to the gifted out there. We can only live on our giftings and personality and intelligence for so long. God has gifted you with many things. We should not be foolish enough to think our worth is based upon the gifts we possess. It's easy to surrender what we're not good at to God, but what is harder is surrendering what we are good at. Ahab was a charismatic, gifted leader. This gift could be used to rally people to, for a good cause, like the worship of God or revival. Or it could be used to rally people to control them and rule over them with false doctrines, false little g-gods, and excessive taxation. He used his gift unwisely. It's such a wake-up call when we see such destruction of gifted men. The man who defeated the Arameans twice and led a coalition of nations and expanded the northern reach of Israel to the reaches of Solomon's territory died as spoken by the word of the Lord in a single battle. The most gifted of northern Israel's kings dead on the battlefield, at the height of his greatest deception, killed in his deception. As the people of God, let us be very careful to not walk in deception and be led away by the same spirit, and let us be overly aware that the giver of our gifts and talents and abilities is the one who should get the glory for them.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.